The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And would you please open your Bibles to the Old Testament? How's that for being vague? You can actually open to the book of Isaiah. That's where we're going to begin. It is Christmas. It is that time of year, of course, as we celebrate our Savior's birth. As I mentioned last week, the Christmas story begins much earlier than Luke chapter 2. We just read it a moment ago. You are familiar with the story in Luke chapter 2, but that's not really at all where the story of Christ's birth begins. It actually starts thousands of years before that. And it is the theme of the Old Testament. There is a scarlet thread running through the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi and weaving all the way through every book for the most part in the Old Testament is something about this coming Messiah. The Old Testament is not a bunch of haphazard stories that are just strung together until Jesus comes. The central theme of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. And though he is not in every verse, he is certainly woven into every part of the Old Testament. It is what the Old Testament pointed to. It is what the Old Testament anticipated. It is what they were looking forward to. In fact, if you were a Jewish Old Testament saint... There was one thing that you were anticipating, one thing that you could not wait for, one thing that you hoped to see in your lifetime, and that was the Messiah. We just sang some songs, come thou long expected Jesus, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. This is what the songs of Christmas capture, this this element of Christ is coming. And if you were an Old Testament saint, that is what you longed for, and this is what Christmas is about. The Old Testament is essentially a collection of woven truths together about the coming of this Savior. It is what we call progressive revelation. And as you move from Genesis to Malachi, there is an increasing amount of truth that we find about this Savior who will come. As I said last week, it is kind of what happens when you do a puzzle. You put the edge pieces together. And as you slowly begin to put piece and piece after piece together, by the end, you have a complete picture. That's what the Old Testament is. It's, it's the filling in of the picture that you get, the full picture of which is Christ himself. And so last week, we took some time to walk through a portion of the Old Testament that looked forward to his coming. We said last week that we wanted to do this in the same way that Jesus did this, remember, after his resurrection, when explaining to the disciples on the road to Emmaus about him, he went to two places. He went to the law and the prophets. He went to the first five books of the Bible, and he went to the prophets to prove that they spoke about him and they anticipated him. 
So last week, we spent our time looking at seven key passages in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And this morning, I want to come and I want to fill in the rest of the picture for you, and I want to do that by taking you to the prophets. This is the second arena that Jesus said, spoke about him, and so I want to take you this morning to seven prophetic books which continue to fill in this picture of who Christ is and help us see and understand who this Messiah was that they were looking forward to. So this morning is not going to be like we normally do. We normally go to a passage and we camp there. This morning, like last week, I want to just take you from passage to passage to passage, and I want you to sense the weight of what the prophets were speaking of as they anticipated this Savior. So I want you to go to Isaiah. I'm going to take you on seven stops, seven stops on our way through the prophets that are going to get us to the end of the Old Testament. And the first stop, of course, is the book of Isaiah. It's where we need to begin, so you can make your way there. As Dale said a couple of Sundays ago, the book of Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel. We have Matthew, and we have Mark, and we have Luke, and we have John, and we have these marvelous gospel accounts of Jesus Christ, and yet that's not the full picture, although it tells us a lot about his life. There is another book that that tells us something that those other gospels then fill out for us, and it is the book of Isaiah. And of course, the first place we come to is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you know Of course, this very famous text, so you can go there, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, very well-known text that we speak on at this time of year. It is a prophecy, and it is a prophecy that was written 700 years before Jesus even arrived, seven centuries before Jesus showed up is the prophecy that he would be born in a miraculous way. Just to quickly remind you of what is going on here. Remember that the the people of Israel were in a sorry state. They were in a very difficult time. They had disobeyed the Lord and they were being exiled off into other lands by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. And, And so it was a very somber time and yet God was not done with them. And he wanted them to know that he wasn't finished with them and that they would continue to be a nation. And so he he says to Ahaz, the king, ask for a sign. For me to prove to you my faithfulness to you. Notice verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah chapter 7. The Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God and make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God says to the king, I'm going to preserve you people. And to prove that to you, I want you to ask for any sign you want, and I'll do it for you. It can be as deep as you want. It can be as high as you want. It can be as wide as you want. You can ask for anything, Ahaz, and I will do it for you to prove my faithfulness to your people. And Ahaz looks at that and says, well, I probably shouldn't do that. Look at verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He refuses. Oh, I would never do that. I would never put the Lord to the test. That's not something I could ever do. It sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? 
Sounds pretty sanctimonious. The problem was God told them to. And he didn't. So God says, all right, I'll give you one anyway. Verse 13, then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? So God proves his faithfulness to his people and gives them a sign. A sign that would mark him as faithful to the nation of Israel. And the sign comes, as you know, in verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. There's going to be a birth. Not like any other birth. I mean, let's face it. The fact that women have babies, that, that's a special and wonderful thing, but that happens all the time, especially here at Maranatha. Amen. There's another crop coming, I hear, five or six or seven babies on their way. We love that. As wonderful as it is, it's not unique. It happens all the time. But this one's unique. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. This one's unique. And this one's unique is because a virgin would conceive and give birth. Without the help of a man, without the normal reproductive process, this child would come into the world in a virgin birth. It's incredible. The virgin will be with child. The word virgin here is Alma. And some critics of this actually deny that this is a messianic prophecy because they say that had Isaiah actually wanted to communicate that this would be a virgin birth, he would have used a different word, betulah. And yet that's not the case because every other place this word virgin is used in the Old Testament, and there are six of them, it always refers to a virgin. Isaiah is very clear. The Lord is very clear here that this would be a special birth. And his name would be special. Notice verse 14 again, his child's name would be Emmanuel, God with us. God in human flesh. So, in addition to everything we saw last week and all that we learned last week about this coming Messiah, the picture becomes even more full with even this first prophecy in the book of Isaiah. He is going to arrive in this world through a supernatural birth, and that's how you're going to recognize him. But Isaiah fills out much more of the picture for us. Go over to chapter 9. And again, you know this text. It is not unfamiliar to you. Isaiah Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and again, the situation is the same. They were in dire straits. They were in difficulty. They were in hardship. The nation was being exiled for their disobedience, and the northern tribes had already come and been taken captive, and the Babylonians would eventually come and take the southern tribes captive as well. The people are oppressed. They're experiencing the consequences of their disobedience, but it's not hopeless, God knows, and he's going to take care of his people. He hasn't forgotten them. 
And so he tells them something else in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Here, here's going to be one who's going to come. He's going to deliver the people of Israel who are under bondage because of their sin. And notice what it says. You're familiar with these verses. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Here's more we learn about this Savior. He's going to be born, as we just said in Isaiah 7 which tells us something. He's going to be human. Humans are born. He's going to come into this world in the same way that you and I come into this world. He's going to take on humanity. He's going to be born into this world. He's going to become a man. And notice the next phrase in verse 6, and a son will be given to us. Now listen with me about this. That the son given speaks of his divinity because you cannot give which doesn't pre exist. That's a statement of Christ's pre existence. He has always been from eternity past. He has existed from eternity past. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And so that speaks of the fact that he, he's going to be divine. The divine is going to step into time. So in that first phrase in chapter six, or chapter. Nine, verse 6, we learn he's going to be human and he's going to be divine. And verse 6 says he's going to have a government. And he's going to be a ruler and a king. And notice the next phrase, he's going to be called wonderful counselor. He's going to speak truth and he's going to, he's going to speak with complete wisdom and have knowledge of everything. And he's also going to be the mighty God and the eternal father. You say, wait a minute, I, I thought... Christ is the second person of the Trinity and the Father is the first. How can he be called the eternal Father? Isaiah is not confusing the members of the Trinity here. He's saying that the Son is going to act like a father to his children. He's going to have compassion on his children. He's going to be a father to his people. He's going to eternally care for them as a father does his children. He's also going to be called the Prince of Peace. He's going to bring peace from God and issue forth peace with God. And notice verse 7, he's going to have a kingdom and a government. It's going to be a Davidic kingdom. He's going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to rule over his kingdom and he's going to do this forever and he's going to speak with and rule with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore he's going to be an eternal king and so isaiah fills out more of this picture he's going to be a man who is god in human flesh who will rule with all power and authority on david's throne Turn over to Isaiah 11. Do a few more here in Isaiah, and then we'll move on to a few more. Isaiah chapter 11. There's some other things that we learn about 
this coming king. Notice the first two verses of that chapter. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We learn something else about this coming king. He's going to be from Jesse, David's father. He's going to be in the line of David, and the Holy Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. His entire life and ministry is going to be dominated by the Holy Spirit. And notice what's going to happen to his kingdom as a result of this. Notice verse uh, verse 3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Notice what he's saying here. He's going to rule powerfully and righteously and justly and correctly, and he's going to throw down his enemies when he shows up. And notice the kingdom. By the way, Isaiah is combining the first and the second coming of Christ in these verses. If you're wondering why hasn't that happened yet, it's because he's combining. And Isaiah couldn't anticipate the gap between the first and the second coming. But notice what this kingdom is going to be like. Verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. That there's going to be animal, animal harmony. When he establishes his kingdom, animals won't eat each other. And notice the last part of verse 6. And a little boy will lead them. Kids, you ever wanted to play with a lion? Maybe go wrestle with that tiger? You're going to be able to. In the kingdom. Verse 7, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox. Vegetarian animals are going to be characteristic of the kingdom. Lions won't eat animals, they'll eat straw. Verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In his kingdom, there will be animal-animal harmony. There will be animal-human harmony. This is how you're going to recognize him. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Just a couple more here in Isaiah chapter, chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. You're going to learn something else about this Messiah. Here's how you're going to recognize him. He's going to have a forerunner, not a car, a prophet who will go before him. 
Notice verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In Isaiah's time, he's saying, listen, that there's going to be, before the arrival of the Messiah, someone who is known as a forerunner. And in that day, it was very common for kings to send out people ahead of them before they traveled to other parts of their kingdom. And so they would go and they would announce his arrival, but they would also prepare the way for his arrival. The king wanted to travel on smooth roads. And so he would send out a highway construction crew to fix the potholes. Be nice if we had that in Michigan filling in the ruts, removing obstacles, throwing away trash, straightening crooked roads, leveling hills, clearing the way, making the pathway ready for the king. He's on his way. He's going to make a journey to this part of his kingdom, and we need to get the way ready so his path is smooth. And Isaiah says the Messiah, before he comes, is going to have one of these forerunners. A team that goes, in a sense, before him who will remove every low place and every high place and everything that's rough he's going to smooth out. This is a spiritual metaphor for the preparation of the heart. Low places in the heart where there's sin residing needs to be tilled out, broken up and removed. High places in the heart where there's Sin and arrogance and pride and self-will and self-glory needs to be brought low. Everything that's rough and uncultivated in someone's life needs to be addressed so that the pathway of their heart is smooth. He's saying there's going to be someone who comes and announces repentance. This is how you prepare for the arrival of the king. You need to repent. So how do you know when this Messiah has come? You're going to know he's here because he's been preceded by someone who came before him announcing his arrival and saying, you better prepare your heart, and you prepare your heart through repentance. That was John the Baptist. That was his whole ministry. That's why he existed. That's why he came, to prepare the people's hearts and make ready their souls for the arrival of the king. So... He's going to have a precursor. This is how you know when he shows up. One other place. Go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. You're very familiar with this. Probably no greater chapter in the Old Testament that speaks of the suffering of the Messiah. Wish we had more time, but quickly notice verse He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. How will you recognize the Messiah? He's going to be hated, rejected, despised. Notice verses 4 through 7. Notice also what he's going to do. Notice the the, the contrast between first-person 
plural pronoun and third person singular pronoun. Notice as I read this, listen for the differences between our and he or him. Surely, verse 4, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like sheep that is silent before its shears. How are you going to recognize him? He's going to be a substitute. There will be a substitutionary atonement where he stands in the place of sinners receiving the punishment that they deserve. Notice verse 9, how else are you going to recognize him? His grave will be assigned with wicked men. In other words, he's going to die with criminals, but keep reading verse 9. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. He's going to die with criminals, but he's going to be associated with a rich man. Sound like Joseph of Arimathea and the tomb that he was placed in? The tomb of a rich man. Skip down to verse 12, and he was numbered. It says there, with transgressors. He would die alongside of criminals. How are you going to recognize this Messiah? He's going to be hated, despised, rejected, killed, associated with murderers, and a rich man. If we stopped here in Isaiah, having just looked at that, you would say there's no other person alive who could even fulfill that. And yet this is just a small glimpse. Let's keep going. Stop number two in our journey, the book of Jeremiah. Turn to the book of Jeremiah, and you're going to have to go all the way over to chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, there's lots of places we could stop on this quick journey through Jeremiah, but let me just quickly show you a couple places. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. Again, the situation is dire. The southern tribes are in danger of being taken captive. They're in a time of great sorrow and sadness, and Jeremiah speaks of this time. Notice in verse 15, it says, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children, and she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Here's the scene. The Babylonians are there. They're taking the Israelites captive off to Babylon. Families are being split apart. Children are being torn from mother's clutches. And they're weeping. Moms are crying out in great mourning and great sorrow as they see their children dying and being deported and being separated from them. If you could maybe picture for just a moment what it might have been like to be a Jew being rounded up during World War II 
and brought to the train station and separated into different groups, you might get a glimpse of what it was like in that moment as families were torn asunder. And yet, this is a prophecy. Verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. This is a messianic prophecy speaking of a time when there will be, at the the timing of the Messiah, weeping and mourning as mothers grieve over the death of their children. This prophecy had a near reality in that day, but it also had a future fulfillment. And you know exactly what happened when Herod wanted to eradicate Christ. He murdered babies and mothers mourned. How are you going to recognize the Messiah? There's going to be great mourning associated with his arrival. But there will be great joy, verse 16 and 17. Thus does the Lord restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There's hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. So built within this time of sorrow and sadness is a promise promise that they're going to return to the land, which they did one day. Ultimately, how is this healing going to come for these people? Turn over to Jeremiah 33, two chapters to the right. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 17, who ultimately is going to heal the people of Israel. Verse 14, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days, and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Someone's going to come in the line of David, and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Jeremiah, like Isaiah, is combining the two comings of Christ. Christ came as the righteous branch of David, but he hasn't executed justice and righteousness on the earth yet. And so Jeremiah, looking ahead, can't see the now 2,000-year gap between the first and the second coming of Christ, but he knows that it's one full picture. And so when the Messiah comes, you're going to recognize him because he's going to be in the line of David, and when he comes, he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. And in those days, Judah will be saved and and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. Verse 17, for the Lord says, David will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Some have said, well, that promise can't be true because the throne of David ceased in 586 BC when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem. So clearly God doesn't keep his word because there has not been a king on the throne of David since. But it's not as they say. David will not lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel because David's line will not fail before the righteous branch comes to claim his throne. In other words, the prophecy is not complete. He's coming And when he comes, he will sit on David's throne. So this is how you're going to recognize him. 
He's going to arrive, and there's going to be mourning and sorrow and sadness around his arrival, and yet there's a glimmer of hope in that because he's going to bring in a kingdom, and he's going to rule and reign on the power of David, and his kingdom will never end. Let's go to stop three, Daniel. Skip the book of Lamentations and Ezekiel, and go to the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, here's stop 3 on our journey through the prophets. Obviously, there's many other places we could stop. We could stop in Daniel chapter 2. We could stop in other places. I want to take you just to one, Daniel chapter 7. You remember that this is Daniel's vision of the four beasts, the four animals. Some have called this chapter the jungle book chapter. (laughs) Maybe more like Jurassic Park. Notice the first beast in verse 4. The first beast was like a lion. and had the wings of an eagle, and I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a a man. A human mind was also given to it. This is a lion-like animal, and this, of course, represents the nation of Babylon. Then we see the the second beast in verse 5. Notice what Daniel says, and behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and they said to it, arise, devour much meat. There's going to be a second animal. This one's going to be like a bear. This is representative of Medo-Persia, nations, kingdoms that are going to fall before Christ arrives, uh, arrives. There's a third beast in verse 6, and after this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had its four heads, and dominion was given to it. This is Greece. And then the fourth beast, a fourth kingdom, a devastating and terrifying Kingdom described in verses 7 and 8, and I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. Notice he doesn't describe it with a current animal we know. It's not like a lion. It's not like a bear. It's not like a leopard because it's something that we're so unfamiliar with, we don't even know how to represent it. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by its roots before it. And behold, this horn, this little horn, possessed eyes like the man, eyes of a man and the mouth uttering great boasts. This is Rome. Beast number one, Babylon. Beast number two, Medo-Persia. Beast number three, Greece. Beast number four, Rome. All representing actual, literal, earthly kingdoms that would fall before the arrival of the Messiah. And by the way, this kingdom, the fourth one, has two phases to it. Phase one, which has already happened in history, and phase two, which has not happened. Phase two representing a revived Roman Empire with ten nations that have been brought back together. Still future. And notice the character in this beast, described as a little horn, the Antichrist, who speaks, verse 8, 
with great boasts. This is, will be an arrogant, prideful, blasphemous, proud individual who will deceive great numbers of people. There was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who in the Roman Empire did what this individual speaks of, but he was only a precursor to the true Antichrist who is still future. What's going to happen to this Antichrist? Notice verses 9 and 10. Look at this description of the throne room of heaven. Verse 9, and I kept looking, Daniel says, until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took a seat. This is God, the Father. And his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool and his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. This is a glimpse into the very abode of God itself. This is where God himself dwells. This is his domain. And notice what he is going to do to Antichrist. Verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. What's going to happen to this beast and the Antichrist who rules it? He's going to be destroyed, annihilated. And what's going to replace his kingdom? Notice verse 13. Here it is. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Notice that these two verses and verses 9 and 10 speak of the, God, the, the Father and the Son, and sandwiched between those four verses are ter- two verses about the death of Antichrist. Antichrist will meet his maker. And whose kingdom will be set up, and as a result, it will be the kingdom of the Son of Man, which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion which will never pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. By the way, this must be an earthly kingdom. Babylon was an earthly kingdom. Medo-Persia was an earthly kingdom. Greece was an earthly kingdom. Rome was an earthly kingdom. And when Christ comes, he will establish an earthly kingdom. Daniel's speaking of what he's going to be like when he arrives. And like Isaiah and like Jeremiah, he couldn't see the gap between the first and second coming, but this is how you're going to recognize him. 
He's going to be a king with a kingdom and an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom will never be destroyed, and he will put down the kingdom of the Antichrist. You see how this picture is getting fuller and fuller and fuller? To the point that when he shows up, you will have no doubt in recognizing him? Well, I said there's seven. That's three. We have to go pretty quick. Stop number four, Hosea. Quickly, Hosea, the next book after Daniel. Go to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. You remember Hosea was meant to be an illustration. He was to marry a woman named Gomer, which in and of itself is a difficult trial. (laughs) Sorry if that's your name. A woman who would become a prostitute. A woman whom he would continue to go back and plead with her to come back and welcome her back and take her back and love her back. He was meant to be an illustration of the faithfulness of God to his adulterous people. And notice Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. How did God love his people? He took them out of the horrible situation they were in in Egypt, called them to himself, and planted them in Israel. Hosea is looking back and says, God's loved his people, but it's a prophecy about the future. It's a messianic prophecy. Matthew picks it up and says that this is the Christ, the one who's been called out of Egypt. Remember, what did God tell Joseph and Mary? Flee to Egypt because Herod is going to destroy the children. Run, get out of there. And where is he going to have to come from to inaugurate his public ministry? He's going to come from Egypt. So how are you going to recognize this Messiah when he shows up? He will have come from Egypt Go to Micah, stop number five. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Micah chapter five. How else are you going to recognize this coming king? There's going to be some other markers that will help fill in this picture, that will help us understand who he is, and when he comes, there will be no doubt about who he is. Micah chapter five, verse two. Micah says, as for you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. A messianic prophecy. You will be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. Why the second word? Because there was Bethlehem Galilee. And Micah wanted there to be no confusion about which Bethlehem it would be. It was not Bethlehem Galilee. It was Bethlehem Ephrathah, the one five miles south of Jerusalem, that small, nondescript, unimpressive, insignificant village that verse 2 says was too little to be among the clans of Judah. No one cared about Bethlehem for the most part. It was unimportant. It was inconsequential. And it was largely irrelevant. And there in that humble Small, tiny, nondescript 
village, the king would arrive. Let us, Micah says, from there will go forth for me one who is ruler in Israel. The king is going to show up in Bethlehem. And notice how he describes him. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That's a reference to his divine nature. He's the one who has always existed, who is going to step into time and space in a little irrelevant town of Bethlehem. So how do you know when he shows up? He's going to be born in that nondescript village. Stop number six. Zechariah, second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah knows a little bit about this coming king and gives us a few more pieces to the puzzle. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. How how are you going to recognize him? He's going to bring justice and he's going to bring salvation. And notice the next word, he's going to be humble. And not only that, notice how he's going to arrive. Mounted on a donkey, even on a colt the foal of a donkey. How are you going to recognize him? He's going to arrive in Jerusalem riding a donkey, which is how he came into that city six days before his death. Turn to chapter 11, two chapters to the right. How else are you going to recognize him? Chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. How are you going to know he's here? Notice Zechariah says, I said to them, if it is good, this is verse 12, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. A messianic prophecy. How are you going to know he's arrived? Because he's going to be betrayed and sold for 30 pieces of silver. And someone's going to go buy a field called the potter's house. That's exactly what happened with Judas. It's undeniable. The picture's fuller and fuller, and fuller. One more stop, last stop, Malachi. Look at the last two verses. Look look at how the Old Testament ends. Notice the last words that are heard coming from the lips of God through a prophet. Notice the words that would have been ringing in your ears if you were an Old Testament saint living about this time. Notice the thing that was on your heart and on your mind and the things that you would have heard as the Old Testament closes. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great 
and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Someone like Elijah the prophet is going to show up before the Messiah comes, and he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers by announcing repentance. John the Baptist. And the very, one of the very first individuals we meet when we come to the New Testament is this Elijah-like person who prepared the way. You see it? It's so obvious. There is no one in human history who could fulfill this entire picture and meet every single prophetic announcement, every single symbol, every shadowy event that pointed ahead. There can be no other person who would fulfill all of this other than Jesus Christ. And so my question to you this morning is, do you know him? You can know all of this, and you can have all this facts, these facts in your head, and yet you can still be lost and miss the spirit of Christmas. And more importantly, spend an eternity in hell apart from Him. So do you know Him? Not do you know about Him. Not do you have facts in your head. Do you know Christ? And for those of us that do, do you worship Him? Do you worship Him as the fulfillment of all that was prophesied? Lord, we thank you. Thank you so much for these marvelous, marvelous truths. Lord, how incredible it is for us to see in the pages of the Old Testament these pictures put together, brought to completion by the arrival of our Savior. And we thank you that we have one who is undeniably the one spoken of. May we worship him. May it thrill our hearts to know him. And for any here this morning who do not know you, Lord, we pray earnestly that you would help them see their sin, that they would turn from their sin, they would embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on him and submitting their life to his lordship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.